Champaign, Illinois native Emily Harrington coming to you from Kitchen Table Studios in the ever-evolving, sometimes boring, flatlands of Champaign-Urbana for the next podcast episode of Hyperlocals, where townies and transplants share their tales of tears and triumphs, losses and wins, so stay tuned to catch the characters behind the beloved Twin Cities of CU. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the Hyper Locals podcast. I have another military man at Kitchen Table Studios. We are meeting for the first time. He came by recommendation from another veteran, and I looked him up, did a little investigating, and he responded promptly, and here he is, and he was 20 minutes early in military fashion, and he says that is how he rolls. That is not how I roll. I'm always 10 minutes late, so we would be a good equalizer, I think. We have Garrett Anderson. Hi, Garrett. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Great. Okay. Should I call you Garrett? Is that the but, most respectful term? Yes, that's fine. Okay. And he said he's open to talk about anything, which is the best kind of guest. His wife is Sammy Anderson, and she's a family law attorney in town, and you have two daughters. Yes, I have two daughters, Skylar and Alex. Skylar's a, a junior in high school at St. Thomas More right now. Oh, okay. And Alex is her eighth grade year at Holy Cross. Oh, wow. Okay. We're a St. Matt's fam. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're in competition here, Garrett. Okay, well, I looked up his credentials, and I'm going to see if I get them right. He is a retired sergeant in the U.S. Army, outreach coordinator and student recruiter at the U of I, and the... Chez, it's a hard cha veterans center. And what do you do there specifically? I do community engagement, fundraising, and recruitment for the University of Illinois and the Chez Veterans Center. Um, the University of Illinois is a, we're oddly weird when it comes to the veterans because we date back to World War II when it comes to serving disabled veterans, starting with um, Dr. Nugent, where we were one of the first four or five universities in the entire country to allow hmm. disabled veterans to attend higher ed. Um, that mindset way back during World War II was when veterans were injured or disabled, their quality of life was, you know, just receive your disability pay, sit back, sit in a chair, and enjoy the rest of your life. But these guys were young, yeah. but they wanted to use those education benefits that they had. So um, Dr. Nugent was building... Um, wheelchair ramps in his garage to get um, students into classes. We were the first campus in the entire country to have um, curb cuts in the, oh, wow. in, and the very first wheelchair accessible bus in the entire nation was at the University of Illinois. Really? Wow. Okay. So at the Chez Veterans Center, what do you specialize in? Who would come to you? Um, student veterans or military connected veterans. Um, what I mean by military-connected veterans is um, sometimes you have service members and you have their dependents and, and their children. 
Um, so if they're guard, reserve, active duty, or the dependents or spouses, we serve those individuals in higher ed. We have about 600 and some military connected on campus. About 50% of those are actually um, dependents. And 50% of that number is actually in, in graduate school. So whatever needs these students need um, when they're in higher ed, we try to facilitate and eliminate these shortcuts because when I was in higher ed, um, getting my two degrees, there was nothing like this. Mm. So basically I was like lost trying to find my way through. So we've made every mistake possible, me and our, our team. Sure. So we know how to maximize their benefits, optimize their experience, and help them transition from that military, even if that's a dependent, to that new civilian life. Oh, okay, okay. When did the Ches Center, when was that formed? It was about six years ago we cut the ribbon on that. Oh, wow. So you have been there since the foundation, basically. Yeah. I, well, I was started fundraising for the center when it was just a hole in the ground. When I had Gene Driscoll approach me about this project. Um, and then when we started fundraising, we started working with Keller Williams and other groups like that to help local fundraising to raise money for the Veterans Center. Okay. Wow. So this is going to be around Memorial Day is my intention when releasing this podcast. So with that said, I wanted to get multiple veterans with different experiences on. So let's kind of start a little bit from the beginning. You told me in kindergarten and first grade, you moved to the area of Farmer City, Mansfield, and Bellflower, which feeds into Blue Ridge schools. Yes. So I was not a extraordinary student (laughs) by any means. (laughs) You know, I had the typical, like, small-town school. Like, there was 47 people with three towns combined in my in my graduating class. Wow. So, we were not a large school. And I sure. Was, I was an extraordinary athletics. I was an extraordinary uh, academics. I was just your average student. Um, but I really liked the small-town feel. I really yeah. liked the, you know, I went to graduated and went to school with the same kids from kindergarten all the way to high school. So, we wow. knew each other. So. Yeah. Okay. And at that point, are you thinking, let's say you get into high school, what's your future going to hold? Did you want to be a doctor? Did you want to be a baseball player? I think the military was always in my background because um, we weren't financially stable enough to send me to college. My okay. parents we didn't have the money to pay for me to go to the U of I or go to anywhere else like that. So I knew the military was uh, something my all my family did. And I have a twin brother who joined the Marine Corps. Oh, wow. My dad was in the Navy. My uncle's in the Navy. My stepdad was in the Army. My mom's dad was in the Army. So we really have a rich history in my family of everyone serving in the military. Me and my brother were actually in Iraq at the same time. And he was just like somewhere else in Iraq. And so wow. my mom was having a really bad year that year. So Is there two boys in her family? Oh, uh, yeah. So it's me and my twin brother. And is that all of her children? Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. So both of her kids were in Iraq at the same time? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And he went Marines and you went Army. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. That's competitive nature. So at this point, (laughs) I had to buy him everything Army for Christmas and his birthday. And he buys me everything Marine Corps. That is so funny. Okay. Okay. So you both enlist at the same time? Um, I tried college at Parkland and okay. failed miserably. <laughs> I was not ready for that. It was just the transition I wasn't ready for. Um, so I, I tried Parkland. At least you're honest. 
Again, a military trait. So I failed miserably. He joined right out of high school. So he was a year ahead of me. Then I joined after he did. But, you know, ironically, we picked the same MOS. We were both 11 Bravos. um, What's MOS? um, Mission Order of Service. So so it's what your job is in the military. He was 0311 in the Marine Corps, which was infantry. And I was 11 Bravo, which was infantry. So what does infantry mean? The infantry is only about 10% of the military, but we're the front line of the, of the fighting force. So the military is a very large force. This is like anything else. You have many components. You have your supply people, your cooks, your infantry, your artillery. We're just the component that's out front with engaging the enemy most of the time. Okay. Okay. So you both chose the same job. He's a couple years ahead of you. <laughs> Tell me about boot camp for you. And you don't call it boot camp. Well, it's basic training. Basic training. Okay. He's in boot camp, or he was. He was. Okay. So, yeah, they call it boot camp in the Marine Corps. We call it basic training. For me, basic training was just like, it was actually, I liked the structure. Mm. So, it was just a normal, every day you you had a new task. And I'm a very task and list-oriented person now. Mm. So, if I have a checklist, I can get anything done. So, it's just, you get through every day. Um for the infantry, unlike other jobs, MOSs in the military, you normally have a basic training, then you have your tech school, your MOS school. Okay. We didn't know. It was like one day they just told us we were in our school because it was just all just infantry. So we went from one one day we were basic training, one day we were in our tech school. But like you did a different MOS, you would graduate basic training and then go on to your tech school. Okay. We just had big, really long training all the way through wow okay so you said that you liked the structure list format all of that were you like that prior to the military absolutely not i was okay so this taught you an extreme amount of discipline yes it taught me more discipline than i had prior so okay so it took kind of a lost person and found their purpose okay Now, what year is this that we're in basic training? 1998. 1998. Okay. So where do we go from there? Are you seeing a future? Like this is going to be your job or is this going to be an in and out a way of getting school paid for type thing? I was really enjoying my time in the military. So I went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, did some really cool stuff there. Flew in helicopters. I got to rappel out of helicopters. Oh, my gosh. And um, stuff like that. And then I went to Korea. Got to see parts of Korea that I didn't see. And at that point, it was probably around 9-11. Okay. Because I was, I was in Korea during 9-11. Okay. So, I was, so we were sitting there, and I, I actually watched the planes fly into the World Trade Centers at that point. On TV. Uh, on TV while I was in Korea. And so then we were tasked with a, a job of, of, of guarding the front gate with live ammo. At that point, the only time we had live ammo was when we went to the firing range. And so this oh, was God. So, I mean, we didn't know there was going to be a war. We didn't assume there was going to be a war of any type. So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, our recon team. You're sitting in Korea. You're guarding the front gate of what? Of the base that we were in charge of. In Korea. In Korea. Camp Casey, Korea. So our unit and other units were on a rotation of guarding the front gate and screening cars as they came in. So we'd have to check them for bombs or check them for stuff like that. And at that point, it was it was a little like surreal. Like, what is going on right now? And what was funny about this is I was about a month and a half out from ETSing and coming back to the civilian world when this happened. Oh, no. 
When you joined the military, in no way did you think you'd ever be involved in a war? No, not at all. Especially since the, what, the past, prior to that, we had zero like conflicts at that Sure. Moment. Okay. So 9-11 happens. You're in Korea. You're watching it on TV. And where do you go from there? Is this initial thought is, uh-oh, or you still don't think we're going to go to war? I knew we were going to war. But I knew my unit wasn't going anywhere because we were tasked with the Korean Peninsula. Right? Okay. We war II, so I never thought that we would deploy from Korea. Eventually they did, but I was already deployed to Korea on, on that duty station. So I opted to get out of the military because I thought I wanted to go out, get my degree, and come back as an officer because mm. officer pay and enlisted pay are two different worlds. Sure. Just like any other profession. Yes. Okay. And at this point, have you met Sammy? No, I have not met Sammy at this point. Okay. All right. So how do we get into combat? Well, I came back to Illinois and I started college using my all these great education benefits I had. Sure. I earned while I was in the military. So I started going back to Parkland. I was more successful this time. I'm going to put that out there. <laughs> it's that discipline. More, yes. Much more successful <laughs> at this point. And then I'm just going to college, working, and getting through those thrills. And then I always had this missing piece. Like, there's a puzzle out there, and I was missing this piece. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't in the Guard, or I was in the Reserve, or anything like that. And so I, I think it was the military. So I joined the National Guard, Illinois National Guard, at that point. Okay. So just one more thing. I went and joined the National Guard. On, I joined a local unit here in town, which was a recon sniper team, which when I was in the military, I was trained to be a sniper. So I went and joined this recon team, which was the greatest group of guys I've ever served with. Mm -hmm. When I was active duty, we'd always hear about Guard and Reserve and how dysfunctional those units were, right? <laughs> and like, it's just a weekend warrior. These guys don't know they're done. Oh, interesting. Some guy runs this gas station or some other guy does this. These were the most highly trained, highly professional soldiers I've got to train with because they all had... The military some of most of them were prior service and they all had careers like police officers and so mm, okay and other stuff like that so we were all like we're much more mature than your average unit on active duty is national older. guard under an umbrella illinois national guard is under under the state of illinois okay it's not army marines navy it's it is a it's a part of the army but okay. it's the army part of the it's the state of illinois army oh interesting Okay, so this is just another feather in your cap, kind mm -hmm. of, another credential. Okay, and what's going on in our climate when you're joining the National Guard? Well, we're still in Iraq, and they're still doing rotations over there. So, And at this point, we had units around the state of Illinois deploying to Iraq. So we had the Paris unit over, and they went to Iraq. They just got tore up. Ugh. They lost so many soldiers over there. We had Chicago units deploying, other units deploying. Or they, they piecemeal people out to go to Iraq with you know attach them to other guard units around the nation so we were actually attached to a 48th brigade out of Georgia also so we were part of their brigade the national guard part yeah, was yes. okay so our our unit to the 130 infantry in Urbana was attached to the um, 48th brigade out of Georgia to go to Iraq are you still thinking once you join the national guard that you're not going to have to go no, because I've never heard. Typically, the National Guard is used for flood and disaster relief wow. and stuff like that. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very rare occasion when we actually get to and have to deploy. 
Like what was really neat why I was there is we were one of the first units to go to Bulgaria. Our AIT was in Bulgaria that year, which was odd. You know, there was a like a light bulb that should have went off at that point. <laughs> we went to Bulgaria to do training for AIT. And AIT is? Uh, well, it's annual training for the National Guard. You have to do two to three weeks a summer. To okay. Keep to travel. To, okay. Uh, up to date. Got it. Um, so we're in Bulgaria and the guy's like, you guys ready? Oh my like, gosh. This is our annual training. What do you mean? Are we ready? So we go there, we do a Bulgaria, and we were the first American soldiers in Bulgaria since like World War II. Okay, so are you guys ready means... Well, we, we didn't, yeah, basically they were insinuating that you guys are going to get the call. Oh my God. But we didn't know, we didn't think we were until that point. Okay. And you still haven't met Sammy. Still have, well, <laughs> I think I met Sammy, I did meet Sammy at that point. I was working at a local bar here in town called Bradley's. Oh, yeah. I, I remember to, Bradley's. I used to be the bouncer at the door, the doorman. So I'd card everybody as they came in. Okay. And so I would, like, screen people as they came in. And so I met her there. Okay, the she was a... Patron. A patron. Okay. So you have met your future wife. Not knowing that she was my future wife, but yes. Okay. Yeah, but we just have started the dating. Have you dated? We were in the dating process. Okay. We just had started dating. Okay, and you get the call. Is it a literal call? Um, we go to drill that weekend. They're like, hey, we're going to Iraq and Jesus. we're leaving on this day. Get your stuff in a fair. How much time do they give you? We only had like a month and a half, I think, ready to get our stuff together, to get all your wills and estate and all that stuff, you know, set up at that point. <laughs> okay. And during the same time, my um, soon-to-be wife was actually entering law school at that point. So she's going up to Western Michigan, Thomas Cooley, to start law school. Okay. So she was in her first semester of law school while I was getting ready for combat. Which okay. your husband would know, it's pretty much the same thing. When you're in law school, you're pretty much in combat. Yes, but your life isn't on <laughs> the line. Yes, I understand. Okay. Um, are you emotionally what are you thinking it was just your job it was just something that you you did and so you really didn't hit until we got in country right it was just we went through the training motions we Jeez. just went through and we got ready we got as, as prepared as we could get prepared to go to combat you're not sad you're not excited it's just a duty mm -hmm. okay all right you're packed and you get put on a plane the National Guard does an 18-month deployment instead of a 12-month deployment, mm. only because we do six months of train-up okay. to get us ready, to make sure we don't go over there and get hurt, right? So we did a 18-month deployment. So a month before I deploy or ship off, two weeks before we ship off, we fly back for um, like a four- or five-day weekend. I fly back to Grand Rapids where my wife is going to law school, and uh, at that point, we got married. because No way. Yeah, he got married. Not because of the money, but we did love each other. But married people do get paid more while you're in Iraq. You get a, a separate, um, like a stipend for being married in separation. How in, long had you been dating? Two months. No way. And now we're on 17 years now. So you got a little Liberty weekend. You go visit her to say goodbye, essentially. Well, we planned on getting married. Like three guys in my unit got married that weekend. Literally no three. way. <laughs> After two months. After two months. And was it a, you get on one knee, or was it a I think we procedural should, conversation? This is a fight that we have all the time. <laughs> who asked whom? 
she texted me that if we wanted to get married. No I, And I threw the phone away, so I don't have the text message for the proof, but she asked me, and she'll fight that still to this day. Oh, my God. Well, she's an attorney. Yeah, so she'll fight that to this day. So she took the, I saved a bunch of money, and they, she went and bought the ring with her friend, and I got there. The ring was already bought. We already went to the county courthouse, Grand Rapids, Michigan, oh and got married. Oh, my gosh. And you've been married for 17 years. Yep. So that was kind of a safeguard would you say getting married before you went Mm -hmm. okay so now you're married after two months and you're going to where do you know specifically the first place we go is kuwait and then from kuwait to iraq when you step on kuwaitian soil what's it like there we step off the plane it's about 120 degrees it's so hot like arizona like arizona dry hot it's Mm. very hot and you're in full fatigues. Full, like we're carrying like 110 pounds of like just on your upper body of uh, body armor and, and stuff like that. So you're just, you know, they take you to Kuwait first to get you sort of climatized before you go to Iraq. Okay. Were you prepared physically? Did you feel like? I was probably in the best shape of my life at that point. Okay. Physically and mentally, I was ready to go. Oh my gosh. Okay. So what happens from there? Well, we get to Kuwait, we do about a week there, and then they fly us to Iraq. Which, okay. Um, when you fly into Iraq, you're always worried about RPGs when you're flying these big C-130s in. Okay, an RPG is? Uh, it's a rocket-propelled grenade. So we basically shoot them at the planes, so the airplanes, and try to knock them out of the sky. <laughs> so we're flying in, so they do a dive. They go up, and they go basically straight down, and at the last minute, they pull the nose up, and they land the plane okay. to, to help prevent from getting hit then we step off the plane and that's when it really hit me that okay we're in combat we're getting ready to go this is really happening now i'm like what was happening for the last six months this is real now because now we're in a combat zone did it look and feel differently when you stepped on the ground in terms of your surroundings and the, we were just on a big airfield and so we go from airfield to our transport to our, where we're supposed to be um, okay and you get your duties? Well, we get our barracks or our cans or our, our living environment. We get shipped to there because we had a Ford Echelon went ahead and set up where we were supposed to live. Then we do a right seat, left seat ride okay. with, a, with a previous unit because there's sectors. And okay. We take over for the 10th Mountain, um, 10th Mountain Division out of New York. And so we do a right seat, left seat ride with them. So we basically, half their unit takes off and half of our unit pairs in and we ride with them for 12 hours a day and then the next day the next unit so we can get used to the environment and they tell us where the good areas are where the bad areas are good meaning safe the safer areas and the more and the you know good people that you can trust people you can't trust and we did that for about a week or two weeks and then they're like wait it's all yours but the, the, the weirdest thing is, is the very first day we step outside the wire with our 10th Mountain guys is we get shot at the very first day we step outside the wire. I'm like, it's real now. I mean, we're getting fired at. Because you've never been fired yeah. at. When you say step outside the wire. The base has a wire or a perimeter. Like a literal wire? Well, it's a wall or a okay. wire. It could be Constantine wire. It could be a wall. Okay. But we call it a wire. So when you step outside that, that's the that's when you're in like the community type oh my thing. God. Around your base is what? A city. We're in the middle of um. We're we were actually in Camp Liberty, which is like where um Hussein Hussein's palace was. 
Okay. And so um, he had a big wall around his his compound. Okay. And so um, we were basically around that area. Now, who is that? Uh, it's Saddam Hussein's son. Oh my! And Saddam has is Since gone. Died. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you step out of the wire or your safe area, and you're immediately shot at. Yes, the, the very first day on a foot patrol. So we're just getting to know the area, and we get shot at, and so we take cover and <sighs> so, and we're like, well, it's real now. Then we get up and we continue walking. And how many guys are within that safe area? On the base? Yeah. Well, there's thousands. 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 And it's a base you guys have created? That's a base that the military had created. Wow. It's a joint base with Army, Marines, okay. Air Force. When you arrive there, are you relieving people and they get to go home? Yes. We okay. relieve the 10th Mountain and they get to go back to the to U.S. Fort Drum, New York. Yes. What do your days look like? We work about 12-hour days. Okay. Um, so we're on 12, off 12. So we rotate our, half our team's nights, half our team's days. And so we were initially on days. And there was like 130 degrees. It was so hot. Oh, God. And um, what are you doing? We're just patrolling. and we're Walking. Walk, well, we're mounted and unmounted patrolling. So Meaning we, on a horse? No, Humvees. <laughs> uh, we're, on, we're in trucks, like Humvees, like okay. um, 1911 trucks. And so we're just driving around, patrolling, looking for suspicious things. And sometimes we'd dismount, you know, lock the trucks up, relieve security of the truck, and we'd walk around. And we like to do, because we had so many police officers in our unit, we did um, presence patrols where we'd go and talk to the Iraqis and try to build bonds and relationships with them mm. and figure out who's new in the zoo, right? And figure out who's the good people, who the bad people, what to look for. Sometimes we'd set up OPs, observation points, where we'd take over a house mm. and we'd set up our sniper rifles and watch certain um, high-risk areas that we know where there's IEDs and stuff being set up. Because what would happen is that people would, at night, they would dig holes and they'd pour diesel on the asphalt. It would melt the asphalt. They'd dig it out. They'd put an IED in, then, then re-asphalt that back. And so then when they were command detonated, so then our American troops would come by. They'd try to detonate that. to. Someone's watching for yes. you guys to roll over it. Yes. You said you're trying to get relationships with the locals. Is there a language barrier? We have a translator. Wow. Um, so, but again... You can trust a translator as much as you can also, but... So the translator was another local? Was, uh, yes, a trusted local. Sort of like, you know, they sort of worked their way in to be an employee. Was there any, like, I'll give you some candy if you give me information, or I'll give you five bucks or food, or... Some people did that. We just, um, sometimes we did, like, humanitarian stuff. Like, we'd get all kinds of, like care packages and chocolate and food and candy and soccer balls and so we sure. we'd go out and set up like little stations and hand it out to the local iraqis also so the children would come out and we'd give them wow stuff. okay and you said you were going into people's homes to set up observation points mm -hmm. how do you get in the home we knock on the door and tell them that we're coming in no way and they have to let you in pretty much yes so how was that received good and bad <laughs> I guess sometimes we take over abandoned homes. Sometimes we take over like people who where they live and stuff like that. Most of the time we didn't want to displace people or hurt the relationship. So most of the time we would do abandoned buildings and stuff like that. Okay. 
And on the other side of those doors, you don't know who's going to be there. Not at all. Okay. So we search the home to make sure there's no firearms or weapons and stuff like that. In Iraq, everyone is actually allowed to have one AK-47. Oh, my God. Which means a... That's a rifle. It's a fully automatic rifle. Okay. Did you form any relationships with anyone? Kids um, or otherwise? Just through, like... I have tons of pictures with Iraqi kids and stuff, yeah. with our units and like that. And we did build relationships with people, but there was, like, one minute they'd be there... And then one minute they weren't there. So it was sometimes it was hard. Sometimes they would, you know, the same person would be there, then all of a sudden nobody would be there. And why is that? We think maybe the um, Taliban or some of like that would just like kill them or something like that. We Or they just leave or something. Okay. The Taliban did not want anyone being nice to you guys. Is that fair to say? They, they would think that these individuals were giving us information on what their operations were or what they were doing. So you have to be careful who you're nice to. True, because it could be. Because unlike World War II, unlike World War One, we weren't fighting a normal war. We were fighting like they weren't uniformed soldiers sitting across the battle line with us, correct? And so we didn't know who the enemy was. We had to be hyper vigilant about everyone. If it was cars or we called them V-beds, uh, vehicle-borne IEDs. So basically they'd load their car with a bunch of bombs and try to drive it as close as they can to you and then blow it up. With themselves in it? Yes. So we had to be very careful about you know, cars getting close to us and in crowded markets and, and kids. Those stories of you hearing of them strapping bombs to women and children, that's not untrue. That happened all the time in Iraq. So it's like a modern kamikaze pilot mm-hmm. almost? Essentially. And they felt like they were doing it for their country? Well, for their religion. When you're going into these people's homes, is there a mom maybe cooking dinner? Yeah, sometimes they were. Uh, yeah, sometimes And you'd were. be looking out the window. We'd be up on the second floor looking down somewhere else. And, and yeah. she's cooking. And she's cooking and they go on with what they're doing, yeah. That's just the norm. Oh, my God. Okay. Is your heart constantly beating? Um, you're always... Up. And it's not really hard. It's really your, your sense of, of, of your awareness. And that's hard to shake because you even have that still to this day. I like the hypervigilance of yeah. knowing what's going around you. When I go to restaurants, I have to have certain, I have to sit certain places. Facing which, the door. Facing the door. My, you know, drives my kid and my wife crazy. But I don't blame you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you able to communicate with your now new wife? I am. At that <laughs> point, they had this thing called, um, like, like it was a Skype, like the early version of Skype sure. or Messenger or Video Messenger. So we were able to do that. So when I was like at night, it would be day here. She'd be in class and we'd like text each other or type and talk to each other that way. When you left her, I didn't ask if that was an emotional goodbye. It was emotional, um, I guess, for both of us. But, you know, we were very fortunate that we were busy. Like yeah, sure. Distracted. We Distracted. And so she had law school getting through that. Okay. Okay. So where do things go south for we, you? And this is the part of the story that I don't know. We were there for about six months okay. um, total. And about that time period. Um, had you sustained any injuries prior to those six months, in the six months? No, we got shot at. We had stuff happen like that, but nothing like the incident that happened did you lose anyone no the only time we lost one person but that was to um suicide are you kidding me and 
someone in the National Guard with you? Yeah, he was from up from Chicago. He was assigned to our unit. So, but he took his life because of his family stuff. But up to that point, our unit was pretty solid. Um, no, we had a couple of people get hurt. Um, trucks getting blown like that week building up two weeks building up there was a surge we're coming up on the very first election the open election in iraq right okay you see those pictures of people with their ink fingers and stuff like that and so we're coming up so they're building the army's helping and everyone's building up these voters voting places and so we we saw an uptick of um ieds and different stuff like that at that point okay happening um so it was October 15th, 2005. Actually, prior to that, we were flying around in helicopters doing um, impromptu like roadside checks. So we'd be dry flying around, we would identify a car, and then we would just stop, and we'd fly the helicopter all the way down and stop the car. And then we would get out, search the car, get back in the helicopters and fly back around. So it was kind of neat to do that stuff. But then we were on a patrol at one point and uh, we were working night shift at this point, which was much nicer than day shift. Because <laughs> there was less activity? Well, less activity because there was a curfew, right? There was a curfew where you couldn't be out. Um, and we had certain systems where we could see what was going on. We get a call early in the morning to go check out a possible mortar landing. So someone dropped the mortar somewhere, allegedly. Okay. It was an ambush. Hmm. We arrive. We're a three-truck convoy. We're the front truck. There's a middle truck and a rear truck. And so the front truck, I'm with my friend Darren Myers, and he's a local insurance guy here in town. Oh, wow. Um, and we still talk and other guys. And so there's nothing. We radio back, nothing going on. So we got to leave. At that point, everything changes. Mm-hmm. Everything is like, if you've ever been in a car accident anything like that this is like we roll down this hill and all of a sudden a large explosion in my life happens but it's in slow motion at the mm-hmm. same time and the air is so thick you can cut it with a knife with the dirt and and the stuff like that and that's when your training kicks in that's when your fight or flight comes in um and at that point i'm reaching for my rifle to engage the enemy it just blew me up um, Where's your rifle on your body? Uh, the rifle is sitting next to me because I was driving at that point. Okay. And normally I was the gunner. Okay. Um, but the gunner took the night off. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, took that night off, and I took a spot, and so we rotated a new person into the gunner. And so it blew up. I'm looking for my rifle. I can't find it. I can't see. I can, I'm starting to choke on my blood Ugh. at that point because my jaw broke in seven spots. And my eye socket right here. And then when the air starts to clear out. Do you feel pain? I have no pain at this point. None. Zero pain because the adrenaline, right? It was pumping pretty good. Zero pain. So I look down and see my arms just gone. It's it's just no saving that. And then I try to yell. I'm down. I'm down. And then all of a sudden, I can't talk because my jaw is broken seven spots. Mm. So then... All of our instincts kick in. We set up the security. They pull me out of the truck. They throw me on the ground. They apply a tourniquet or try to apply a tourniquet. But I have a friend. Um, they finally get a tourniquet applied to stop the bleeding. And then we call for evac at this point um, to get me out of there. And this is your dominant arm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is, I'm right-handed primarily. Okay. Um, so they call for an evac. It's too far out. It's uh, it's too long to get a helicopter in. So they pick me up and they throw me in the back of the Humvee. 
and they drive to Operate Prison, where we have a level three cache, which is like a mini hospital. Okay. Um, they pull me in, they drop me off, and how I'm situated in the car, they couldn't pee me on a gurney, they couldn't pee me on anything like that. They had to actually lift me in the car, in the back of the Humvee, where I'm laying on my friend. And then they had to get me out, which was weird. Um, because this arm is completely, like, really, it's laid across my body, what was left of it. And then they had to sort of get me out without hurting me at the same time, right? Because mm-hmm. my jaw's busted up, my arms all busted up. So I actually had to actually hold myself up and pull myself and lift myself out of the Humvee while they, they lift me out and then put me in the gurney. Um, which is funny, Todd Claxton, he was there too. Is he another local guy? He was a local guy. Wow. Yeah. Um, he... He was hilarious because my arm, this is hilarious for army military humor, by the way. This isn't hilarious for anybody else. Um, my arm balls, like, and he catches it and he, like, he tries to put it back like where it should be, like the same position and lays it back on my body. And Meaning it, it's uh, not, not attached. It's nothing. It's only attached by skin and a few okay. tendons okay. at that point. And so then they throw me in, they get me inside, they take off my uh, my cut off my uniform they cut off my boots which really i'm most upset about is i just bought those boots like a month prior they were brand new i love those boots they cut my boots off and the last thing i hear before waking up at walter reed was get out the bone saw no way and and all i could think of at that point was my wife is going to be so mad oh my god okay did anyone else get hurt that was with you in those three cars, Humvees? Not as substantial as what I had done. Okay. There were some strap metal injuries sure. and some other stuff like that, traumatic, and maybe some other like shockwave injuries, but nothing substantial like mine. Okay. You wake up in Walter Reed, which is in Washington? D.C. Okay. Did you go to sleep because of anesthesia or they, you passed out? They put you in a medical-induced coma. Okay. To operate, they fixed my face, they had an orthofacial, and they rebuilt my jaw. So I have a titanium plate that goes all the way through my jaw. Um, they amputated the arm, then they sent me to Germany, and then they, from Germany, they sent me to Walter Reed. And so you don't remember being in a whole other country? No. That is so crazy. So I, I went to Germany, I don't even, like, remember it. So you didn't even get, like, a stamp in your passport? No. no, no. <laughs> oh, my God. So... Do you remember all this, or is this from people telling you what happened? I remember up to the point of get out the bone cell. So you do remember the dust, the dirt, yeah. your friends. Yeah, I remember everything up until we get out the bone cell. That's it. I remember everything up to that point. Okay. So now you wake up in Walter Reed, and you're all repaired. Well, sort of repaired. They still had to do clean outs and stuff like that. There's a bacteria in the dirt in Iraq that won't let your wounds heal and stuff like that. <sighs> so I'm an inpatient at Walter Reed for a bit. Um, and at this point, um, like I'm talking to my spouse pretty regularly. Like um, every two or three days, I'm I'm calling her or every, you know, we're, we're messaging and stuff sure. like that. Um, but then our tempo went up. So then I went an extra day. I'm like, hey, listen, we're up tempo. We're doing more stuff. What's great is she wasn't your typical military spouse because <laughs> she knew nothing about the military. She knew there was a military. She didn't know anything about the military. Right. Um, so she would hear there was a bombing in Iraq and assume that was close to where I'm at. I'm like, it's a really big country. Sure, sure. It's huge. Um, and so, and even 
my time in Iraq, we would get rocket pellet grenades sent inside the camp, and <laughs> you just get used to it. So then we were just like, at that point, she went to a meeting, FRG meeting, a family readiness group that was a support group for deployed So like spouses. Al-Anon for a military? Yeah. Okay. So it was like a support group for the spouses who deployed, but it was our unit base. Okay. So all the unit wives were there. Oh, okay. And so um, she went to there. She went home. She was in law school, so she was really working hard. And so sure. she went to bed. She woke up the next day, and she found a Kent County um, sheriff in her door. Okay. Um, and then she was like, okay. She didn't know what was going on. Um, she knew two things. If the military shows up in uniform, your soldier's dead. Mm. But if the police showed up, she didn't know what that meant. And so she got all the security of her secure building, and they she saw it was just a police officer, so that was good. Hmm. And she finally got a hold of this police officer because he was off duty. And so they gave her the number to call. It was casualty assistance. And so she gets a hold of casualty assistance in um, Washington, D.C., and they're like, listen, your husband was injured. Mm. And says, you've been married for how long? Six months and like two weeks. And haven't been together in any of that time? No. Okay. And now she's getting information that you've been hurt. Yes. Okay. Do they give her any details? Just that I was injured, uh-huh. um, facial damage, and amputation. That's all she knew. Oh, God. And that I'm on my way to Walter Reed. So how much time has passed? And I also didn't ask you, from the time you heard Get the Bone Saw to waking up in Walter Reed, how much time has passed? Two days. Okay, so Sammy hasn't heard from you, but that's not out of the ordinary. Okay. Okay, what does Sammy do when she gets the information? She lays on the floor. Really? (laughs) She didn't know what was going on. So she finally figures everything out, gets a hold of us. And so they're like, hey, we're going to fly you out to D.C. to see your husband. Hmm. Another good reason you got married. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because she gets all of these benefits to get to you. Yes, and so her mom and dad didn't want to wait. So they drove. They drove her yeah. all the way to DC as as my helicopter was flying in from the Air Force Base with me on it. They were flying in the Walter Reed. We were coming in at the same time, which was ironic. Right? You from Germany. Me from Germany. Well, from Germany to Air Force Base and, and DC area from there and they then they helicopter us into Walter Reed. And we get there and that's the first time we've seen each other in like what, six, seven months? God. And she said my head was huge. She said I, I have a big head anyway, but it was huge, swelling and stuff like that. Okay. What did you look like? You know, we didn't take pictures, but my face was, I had stitches all down my face, all Frankenstein stitches, and my head was swelled up from the trauma. Mm. And what's going on with your arm? What was the... It was gone. They already had amputated my arm, so it was just a uh, arm with a bandage at the end. From the elbow? From right below the elbow. Right below the elbow. Okay, and what's Sammy's reaction? Is there any interaction from you? No, because I'm still knocked out. Okay. Um, as she says it, she was just, she was in shock at that point. She didn't know what to do or how to do it. And I was having difficulty breathing at that point, too. So uh, just trying to regulate my breathing. <laughs> it took a couple of days for me to come out of my coma, but she was just trying to deal with the situation at that point. There was a lot of stuff coming at her at that mm. point, and she was trying to figure out. It was like drinking from a fire hose. And she's still in law school. Still in law school. And, and you're newlyweds. Newlyweds. 
And there's another situation. She was still in law school. And, as, and law school is different than any other education. You just can't like, hey, I'm taking a break. Sure. Um, if you drop out, then you have to start back from L1. Oh, God. We met a gentleman out there at that point. Um, so she dropped out that semester. Oh, um, wow. And they wouldn't let her take courses at another law school. But we met this really nice Vietnam-era veteran guy, a lawyer. He worked for the um, Veterans Bureau. Uh, he was a judge for the um, VA. Okay. And he was like, listen, if I can get you in the law school here in D.C., oh. will you continue? Yeah. She goes, yeah, good luck. It's not going to happen. My school's not going to release me. Apparently, the powers to be gave her permission to take one semester off and go to school in D.C., a Catholic university, and then pick up then she could go back to her law school and finish her degree. Okay, so how long were you in Washington together? And I want to know what happens when you wake up. We were there about six months or so. Okay. Six to eight months. And when I wake up, um, it's sort of a fog. I knew that I had an amputation, and it was just a recovery process. And to me, I had I allowed myself 30 seconds of pity mm. to like deal with it, and that's all I got. Right. This is all we get. Then you just move on and you deal with it because what else, you can't change it. You just got to go with it. Mm. So we figured that we go through eight months of OT, PT, doctor's appointments, clean outs and different stuff like that. Who was the first person you remember when you woke up? My wife was there. Okay. So you see her? Yes. Okay. What do you say? Do you remember? I couldn't say anything because my jaw was wired shut. How much weight did you lose? I was down to like a hundred. I was about 180 pounds of, and I was down to like 130. Wow. I looked like Skeletor. I was so skinny. Could you drink through a straw? That's the only way I could eat or drink. Okay, so this um, philosophy of I'm not gonna have any pity, is that from the military or is that your personality? It might be my personality at that point, but um, it was just one of those things we just did. You just move on, move forward, and it was my wife's too. My wife installed that to me at that point. We're like, listen, we're getting out of here. Like, she didn't understand exactly what was going to go on. She actually packed a bag for me to bring me home. Oh, she wow. thought she'd just pick me up, bring me home to the hospital, and I could recover there. But we were there for an extended period of time. Okay. Was there any complications or the healing went relatively well? Healing went very well, but the military is not like any job where you can be like, hey, I'm not working anymore. There's yeah. a process. There's a huge process of getting out of the military. They first have to evaluate you. They first have to figure out what your injuries are. So I medically chose to medically retire from the military. Okay. So I, I still got a pension from the military and the VA. Um, but that that's not one or two. That's like a, that's months of stuff they have to evaluate. Okay. And today when you showed up, you have a prosthetic. Is that the proper term? Yes. Is that a choice you made? Um, how useful is that? Was that hard to get used to? I have many prosthetics. So, um, oh, interesting. I have like five or six different arms. Like if I had an above elbow amputation, uh-huh. I probably wouldn't wear a prosthetic just because it, the, it's a much larger and more cumbersome type piece of equipment. Okay. Mine's below elbow, just barely, but below elbow. And so you're able to, I have more function than people. The elbow is very important. Oh, interesting. So you're lucky in that respect. You said you have five different ones. Well, I have mechanical, like um, myoelectric ones or mechanical, like sensors. I helped develop one actually through the U of I through a company called Psionic, um, which was really cool. So we developed this prosthetic and it's the world's lightest and fastest prosthetic in the country. 
Okay. So you have different hand motions, essentially? Well, basically I have a lot of hooks. I love the hook because it's durable. I'm still young-ish. So. <laughs> I say the same thing. Yes. <laughs> young-ish. And I'm still active. I, I still golf. I still do other sports. Wow. I used to ride. I had a motocross arm where I would motorcycle dirt bikes and stuff like that with my kids and they're littler. And so I'm still active. I still do stuff. And so I need a very durable arm. Is there anything you cannot do? I can't change windshield wiper blades. I broke a windshield once and chose not to do that anymore. Um, I can do pretty much anything everybody else can do. Okay. Does anyone ever offer you help? They do. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I mean, it's sort of like I can, you know, there's always a way to do something, right? Okay. Okay. Interesting. Have you used now your left hand to write? Have you, are you ambidextrous now? Um, well, ambidextrous, well, I write a little bit, but luckily everything in higher ed and in life generally now is you can text it yeah. or you can type it. Okay, okay. All right, let's talk about how you turned this into your career. When I got back from Iraq, I always had these um, people reaching out to me to do speak engagements sure. and talking like about this. my story like <laughs> yes. this and stuff like that. And so I, I went back to Parkland, finished uh -huh. my degree. Okay. Went to Illinois State, got my bachelor's degree done for Illinois State, which I was the first in my in my side of the family to get a bachelor's degree. Aww. But my wife will still tell you that she has a doctorate. <laughs> <laughs> and um, then after that, I was a stay-at-home dad. I was no the guy. Way. I was the guy going to parks with them because what I forgot to mention is why we were at Walter Reed. My wife and I got pregnant while we were out there. No way. So one more thing we had to deal with. So she had the baby, and then I was a stay-at-home dad. Is she staying at Walter Reed? Is there accommodations there? Yeah, we were staying basically like a hotel. We were in a hotel room. That is crazy. And you get pregnant. Yes, we get pregnant. Um, so we're dealing with that. Then we get out. Then we have the baby. And I don't have to work. I'm retired. And But she has to finish law school. Oh, my God. Okay. So I'm a stay-at-home dad taking care of our baby and and all day and stuff like that. And she's going to law school and working and all that stuff. Um and then uh, I'm, I'm going to parks. I'm going to the indoor park here. I'm like taking my kids all around town. And, and then we have another baby. Oh I come about four, three or four years later. And then once my kids get to school age, I decide that I want to go back and get a master's degree. Okay. And so I applied to the University of Illinois. That's about when I met Gene Driscoll. And I start my master's program. Okay. So currently you work and do what? I do outreach and recruitment okay. and, uh, and fundraising for the CHIS Veterans Center at the University of Illinois. So basically, I go to military bases, I go to community colleges, I go and try to recruit veterans to come to the University of Illinois to go to school and get a degree. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about PTSD. Do you feel like you have that? You talked about being in a restaurant and having to face a certain way. Um, I think I have a slight... The VA would tell you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I only have a panic disorder, according to the VA. But huh. I would say that I probably have a mild PTSD. Um, and actually, they've changed the, the acronym for PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress. And they dropped a disorder because it's hmm. too stigmatizing for individuals um, with the disorder because it made it feel like they were damaged. Right? Yeah, sure. So now it's just post-traumatic stress. Um, and I probably do, um, but I've learned to cope with it um, through getting engaged with community yes. stuff and like I'm a coach. I coach my kids junior high, 
track and cross country teams. Mm-hmm. And now I'm now a coach at my kids' high school cross and cross track team. Wow. Okay. At STM, St. Thomas yes. More. Okay. Do you have any regrets joining the military? None at all. I get that question a lot. If I could change that day, if I could change what happened during that time, would I change that? And I 100% I say no, because mm-hmm. I think that everything really happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. I think that God has a plan and puts people in certain situations. And only, I always make fun of my other guys. My, you know, I'm like, I'm the only one strong enough that could have dealt with this. You guys were just like weak. <laughs> uh, you guys couldn't have dealt with what I'm de- dealing with, right? Um, and we still meet and we still talk. We get together. We have this thing we celebrate. Um, we used to celebrate more, but since we have kids and... You sure? Life. Life. We used to have this thing called a live day. We celebrate the day I got blown up. Oh, my gosh. And so all my unit friends would come in and we'd just drink all night long, eat food, and just tell stories all wow. night long. Um, and these guys would come from California, Seattle, Washington, Arizona, all over, and just come for one weekend just and have a good time. Wow. Okay. Um, what is Memorial Day and Veterans Day? Do they mean anything to you, or is it just another day? Well, Memorial Day is important for me because we're recognizing those soldiers who gave that ultimate sacrifice, right? Yeah. Those ones who didn't make it back. Those who, who lost their lives in combat. Um, so we're recognizing their loss and and their loss of their families. And so it's yeah. important for me to, like, hey, listen, there's people who gave a lot more than I did. Like when I said Walter Reed, my, like, uh, this is a good Monty Python thing, but mine was just merely a flesh wound compared to what some of these soldiers, there's triple amputees, quads, yeah. traumatic brain injuries at Walter Reed. And my injury was minimal compared to what some of these other kids were dealing with. Mm-hmm. And then when I say kids, I was, I was older than some of these guys. Sure. Um, these are 18, 19 year old kids with double amputations. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of my character and part of who I am in town. I'm yeah. the guy that has a hook. And that's oh. how people recognize me. Even at St. Matt's, they know I'm the coach with the hook. That is so funny. I mean, you're much more than that, but I understand what you're saying. Did all the guys come back? All of my guys came back. They did. Okay. That is so, okay. The only downside, I would say, is um, the guy I relieved that night, he took the night off, Sonny. The gunner? No, he was the driver. I was the gunner. Okay. So he took the night off, so we rotated down. Okay. So I took his spot. Sonny dealt with a lot of stress and anxiety, blaming himself for me getting blown up. Oh. He died in a motorcycle accident two years after we got back. Really? So you get sad thinking about that? Yeah. Did you, were you ever able to tell him that this wasn't your fault? I did um, many times, but he drank a lot and oh, he had a lot of anxieties with that. Came to that. Um, that is a common result of the military, PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, the addictions and well I'm so happy that everyone came back for you with you and you have turned this into such an amazing outreach you really have um, you should be so proud of yourself and military people are too humble like you guys deserve so much more credit than you give yourselves I think I think I'm fortunate that I had my wife with me the whole time yeah. I don't know if things would have been different without her because then it was a team right yeah. I mean, we achieved what we achieved because we worked as a team yeah. to get there. When you talk about her, your face changes and you light up a little bit. It's just so sweet. Okay. That is all I think I have. I do want to ask one question and I don't want this to be disrespectful, but it's a curiosity. Did you sh- shoot anyone? I did not. The rules of engagement at that time changed where we had to get permission 
to engage. Like we shot at people, right? Okay. Or cars. Like I was telling you earlier about those VBATs, those vehicle-borne IEDs. And so we didn't know if cars were bombs or not. So if I felt a car got too close to me, I'd put a warning shot like in their, their okay. car. Okay. I don't have any confirmed because if we were on a sniper mission, we would have to get permission from higher ups to, wow. to complete that. Even if you are being shot at? Yes, at some points. Okay. You have to get permission to shoot? Yes, because of the rules of engagement changed at that point. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for answering that. That's um, curiosity more than anything. But that's all I have. If anyone wants to support your organizations, what should they do? If they want to support the chess, like give them a couple yeah. million, let's yeah, say. Yeah, I would love a couple more million dollars. <laughs> um, uh, the Chess Veterans Center, like we are housed on the University of Illinois, right? We're a University of Illinois facility. Okay. But for our operations at the Chess Veterans Center, we're all self fundraising. Okay. So for all of our operations, we have we're looking for a ten million dollar endowment right now to keep the operations going. Okay. Um, so if they go to the Chess Veterans Center website, or you can contact our our fundraising or our people there, and we're always looking. Even if it's a ten dollar donation, we'll take those. Okay. I mean, I'll take anything. Ches Veterans Center website. Yep. You'll find a button. Donate yep. now. Okay. Anything else you want to plug? No, that's about all I got. All right. Well, thank you so much. You are awesome. And Sammy, shout out to Sammy. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. However your podcast host of choice allows, please positively rate, review, comment, and give all the stars. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, share, and ring that notification bell so you know when the next episode drops. Also, search and follow HyperLocalCU on all social media. If I forgot anything or you need me, visit my website at HyperLocalCU.com. Bye!